This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, coming to the stage now, the main stage now, Destiny. Whoops, sorry, Darren, I went with the wrong in- intro. I am so sorry, man. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, once again, boys and girls, you've got the DLR cast, the only podcast by and for fans of Diamond. David Lee Roth, the mercurial one, the magic one. As always, I'm Steve, along with my good friend, dangerous Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, here we are once again at the DLR cast. How are you, my friend? I'm pretty dangerous today. Are, are you dangerous? <laughs> I'm I've rubbed off. <laughs> I'm I'm feeling dangerous too. I think I don't know. So the WFAN shirt that you're wearing. Before we launch into the show, inside baseball here. You know that's this in New York. This legendary AM radio station for sports talk. It's kind of the pioneer, and it's I would say the basis for that movie, Big Fan with Pat Oswald. Were you? And I don't know this about you. Were you? Okay. A- you were caller in. Did you have a radio personality for talking sports? I wasn't Vinny from. And there's a dog barking. I wasn't. There wasn't. I wasn't Vinny from Queens. Let's put it that way. But I. Uh, so here, the quick thing. I grew up on Long Island. Lived on the East Coast for a long time, and was a huge. Before I really became a Stern fan, was a huge fan of Imus in the Morning, late '80s, early '90s, and he went from WNBC to <laughs> America's first all talk. All talk all sports talk radio station, WFAN 660. And I was a bigger sports fan then, got all into Mike and the Mad Dog. And oh my God, I could name half of that lineup back then. I This is a very old polo shirt, WFAN 66 AM in New York. I think they're still broadcasting, being they, here in Minnesota. Still broadcasting, still influential. I, I have a friend who occasionally listens to this podcast who calls in, but it's it's like a joke performance art kind of thing where he gives his takes on the on the Yankees. Yeah. I don't think that the majority of people listen to Duff, WFAN are that they're not doing it as a joke. But no, uh, no. But I I always loved it. And some of there was just some regular callers and regular that you that laugh and Imus used to make fun of them. And yeah. and uh, and the de- all those guys were super informative of the sports guys like Mike and the Mad Dog. And there was this other older guy who was later at night all the time. And he five. <laughs> I think that we can actually pull a connecting WFAN to Dave because I think the producer for Imus was Al Dukes. And Al Dukes was one of the guys who worked on K Rock when Dave had the radio show in 2006. Yeah, he may have been one of the assistant producers. There was two main guys there. And later on, they got in trouble for what got Imus booted off of MSNBC. And Oh, FAN, yeah, but it was Bernard <laughs> Bernard McGurk and Lou Delfina, and I were the main two guys. But there could have been some, you know, other folks there with MSNBC, or maybe, or maybe might, they might have been one. He might have been one of the producers after because he went over to, I'm not even sure. He went over to Fox Business, and then I think WABC picked him up for a while out of New York. This all, all old school radio stuff, I guess. So I feel bad for sidebarring this whole thing. Uh, because this is not the Imus cast. No. The, the TLR <laughs> cast. And, you know, I have to start this show off with an apology. Uh, one of my sweeping generalizations got uh, feedback from two or three listeners with comments where I I think I said, David Lee Roth does not have any fans under the age of 38. And a few people went, I'm under 38. So there is hope to the future of David Lee Roth's fan base. 
There is. And you know what? I remember that. And I more or less agreed with you. But it's funny because as I can remember reading about this, but also seeing this in person, you know, we're talking two generations now are going to rock shows. So the folks that came up with seeing Dave in the 80s, like me, I mean, I'm 54. I know I don't look a day over 53. Well, I got a kid who's 20. I mean, he's gone to rock shows with me, you know I mean? So there are kids out there who's wearing kids or young adults, let's say, who are generation, are we talking generation Y now, I guess, um, who do wear, and younger, who do wear their rock shirts unironically because they are fans. So it's, pass it on, pass the torch, pass the new generation. I mean, Kiss proudly wears that flag whenever you hear Gene or Paul talking, um, you know, that we've, they've got. The, the original fans have kids and grandkids in the audience. So I yeah. hear you. I, I will uh, piggyback off that conversation. Seeing Chicago with Brian Wilson a couple weeks ago, got to go, okay, well, Chicago first came out in the late 60s, and some of the guys still in the band are in their late 70s, mid to late 70s. But then they had their resurgence with their hits in the 80s, the David Foster kind of stuff. I guess you can kind of correlate that with Van Halen, where there's the people who love the first six albums. And then there's the people who came on board with the Sammy ballads. Uh, I was for fun DJing at a get together within the last week and a half. And if, I, if I'm on there, uh, if I'm controlling the songs that get played, just like Paradise and, and Hot for Teacher usually happen, because I don't mind hearing those songs and they're still mainstream enough that it doesn't alienate people. But when I put on a Van Hagar song, it got a better reaction than, I don't know if it's because I don't usually play it, but there are those people like the 80s Chicago fans that, are there and you know that right. is generation later what song did you play i think i put on dreams mm, okay i think that's what i did no or when it's love one those two songs sound exactly the same to me am i alone in that they there is some familiarity with both of them i think yeah they're they're both songs that sammy hagar's not singing in the original key these days <laughs> <laughs> hey that's an impossible key man yeah. i mean that I remember hearing those trying to sing along in the car and I damn, I, I couldn't do it. I was much younger then. I mean, not that I have any sort of voice anywhere close to Sammy, but that's way up there, man. That's high. Both of those songs are just ridiculous. So that's kind of kudos to Sammy that he could ever pull that off in his career, not shaming him that, you know, we all drop keys in our songs as we get older. It's just, how is he able to do that to begin with? That is a masterful singer in the first place to be doing that high vocal kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was, I was, this is another good sidebar, but this is Dave related. But today I'm working and I flip over to Hair Nation on Sirius XM on the web player. And all of a sudden I hear a little ain't enough. And I never turn that song off. I always love that song. That's one of many Dave songs that is always an instant mood enhancer for me. And I yeah. just got to thinking, I'm like, one, it was cool to hear it yeah. on Sirius XM. And I, and I got to thinking too that, of the new song, I, I don't think Hair Nation plays, like, I don't think they were, I don't know, because I wasn't listening, to, haven't been listening to it that much, but, like, for instance, I don't know if Hair Nation played any tracks from the very, very good new Def Leppard record, let's say. But for sure, what Dave's putting out, as far as these, what I'm calling the half the John 5 album, you know, 
where I don't know where pointing at the moon, let's say, or or um, you know, low res sunset or whatever would mm-hmm. get airplay today. I mean, if somebody, if if, if some if some non programmable station out there somewhere or non automated program programmed station out there would take a chance on something like this. And it's a shame because the songs are good, but circling back for a minute, like I said, I love, I still, I love the little enough album and that song just does it to, for me every time. You make a really good point about radio formats. If you take these new old songs from Dave Obviously, you can't do classic rock radio because people don't know these songs and they don't usually play the new single beyond the week it's out or on the specialty show. So you can't do it there, even though it's an old country singer songwriter thing of sorts. You can't do NPR or AAA radio on it. Right. Where where does it go? It doesn't go to the hits of yesteryear. Does it go to modern rock? In for better and for worse, he kind of mm, unpigeonholed himself to, to obscurity. Whereas a little ain't enough, the week it came out, I'm sure that they were pushing it to pop and mainstream rock radio. Oh, it was all over mainstream rock radio. I remember seeing the ads and the trades for it, and and I mean it was a big single priority for Warner Brothers. I mean, remember that was only quote unquote only his third solo album yeah. coming after Skyscraper. So. Yeah, and uh, in combing through a lot of old Dave interviews on Steve Herald's YouTube channel, which, wow, does he have some gems on on there. There's this weird thing of Dave on the New York, and sorry to make New York radio talk again for <laughs> in Finland and Norway and all that, who, do, who couldn't care less, I'm sure. But the New York radio station Z100, which has always been top 40, but it was kind of cooler until maybe the mid 90s of its top 40 and all that. Oh, sure. There's this like hour long segment of Dave hosting and being interviewed on the air and sitting in with the Z Morning Zoo and all that kind of stuff. And you hear that and it's because Dave is this mainstream celebrity that everybody knows. Everyone wants to hear the new single. It's happening. It's cool. And it's not saying that Dave isn't cool. It's just, it's it's not mainstream. It's weird that a guy who sold close to 100 million albums or whatever is not mainstream. I, I guess it's a weird sign of the times that very few of his classic rock peers, do we know what radio format that they're right for? Good question. Yeah, so I, if you look at the Dave news cycle, I mean, the only new thing that I see is that the Gary Sharon comments. Did you see those? I did. Okay. What do you, can you summarize it? Cause I've done a lot of talking here. Can you summarize it and then tell me what you think about it? Um, you can put me on the spot here. One, it, it's funny. I, the first thing I thought of was the fact that these comments didn't, that nothing came up like several weeks before that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. not that they, I mean, um, you know, I, well, I've obviously this came up because what extreme broke up, right? Oh, they, they did. Or did they, or did they wait? Um, um, no, excuse me. Never mind. Jesus. That's my, that's they, my, they that's when joined Van Halen for Van Halen three by proxy. You I, know, this is, this is my fault. I'm looking, I, I see, I see something from metal edge. It says, it says two days ago, I click on it 
and then the byline date is 1997. So oh. excuse me for getting excuse okay. me for getting fooled here, but because I'm wondering, I'm like I remember I'm having a brain cramp here, but I don't remember everything exactly said, which is why I'm looking it up. But well, um, I'll cut however, it. what I was going to tell you, oh, he said singers are secondary. That he was the line, say, right? He didn't just say singers are secondary, but he said everything on the Van Halen tribute concert tour whatever it is is contingent on alex because alex is the decision maker right and oh sweet jewish carpenter i remember thinking about this and making a mental note that obviously completely failed me because that lines up to i made a mental note to talk about this actually because that lines up perfectly with what wolfie was saying it runs through alex that was the first thing i thought of and i also thought too that um, I can't necessarily disagree with him. If it's going to be a tribute, it's about, you know, not necessarily straight up cover tunes, but it's about paying homage to the guitar. So, I mean, that. And on the one hand, I also kind of, it made me think too that, okay, singers are secondary. I love the idea of Pink singing a uh, Van Halen song. Do you get what I'm saying? As Dave, you know, suggested. I, I, I think we can all agree. It's Alex Call. But I also think that that contradicts the other stuff that it's Dave holding it up. Because if this is Alex's decision, how is Dave holding up the process, uh, process and prospect of a tribute tour? That, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And that's a really excellent point. And it reminds me of the fact, well, it reminds me also of the fact that when all that came up a few weeks ago, they just said, well, they alluded to that it was being held up. Well, what exactly was, was he asked for more money? Did he just never pick up the phone? Was he just talking too much? You couldn't get a word in edgewise. Nobody could decide. Do you get what I'm saying? I mean, well, it's just Dave. Well, why? Do you know what I mean? It, it was it cash. Was it management? Do you get what I mean? Was it billing? I so, so I think that that totally goes against what we've been hearing from some people, oh, Dave has been holding this up. Because again, how is Dave holding it up if it's Alex's decision? Uh, so I, I continue to say that we have two camps. Rather than saying good guy, bad guy, this is the person holding up. I think we just have two dysfunctional camps that don't talk. Three, if you count Sammy and Michael as another camp, which I think is fair to do. This is no knock on on Gary. I'd sooner expect like a Nuno Betancourt to be to get the invite, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't expect a Van Halen three song to be played. Hopefully not. Well, do you get what I'm saying? I mean, I don't. I mean, why? I'm not. Would Gary be on the list of singers to get the call? Probably because he was in Van Halen three, but he wouldn't sing the song. I mean, I think most people would probably think, well, it's going to be it's going to be Sammy and Dave, which yeah. Again, then it almost turns into like a Van Halen tribute band slash cover band, right? Almost. If you're gonna have if you're gonna have Michael and Alex a part of it. Do you get what I mean? I mean, there's a weird thing there. I would I you're never gonna be able you don't want to have a complete copy. Do you get what I'm saying? Of the songs. Yeah. I'm with you there. But I just thought that this threw a little gasoline on. It didn't go super viral like anything from the past two months, like Dave's new music, Dave's comments on this, the Eddie Rolling Stone thing. It didn't go viral around that. But 
I did get a little curious about Gary Sharon appears with these comments that, per, that kind of actually turn out to be pro Dave in a way indirectly and no one picks up on that. And, uh, you know, a, a weird conversation that I had with a friend today, because there's certain people that you can expect to pop up in any two week news cycle cycle rather. And one of them is David Crosby. Are you aware of David Crosby's tweets? Occasionally when they, when, when they, jump off of Twitter and he says something that is kind of incendiary or, yes. I mean, the last time I heard was, didn't he announce that he can't tour anymore? He did. And he's been broke and unbroke like 10 times. Oh, he just sold his whole catalog. What to venture capitalist for $40 million. Right. Yeah. He keeps doing and saying dumb crap. Eddie died and he made a dumb comment about Eddie. And it's like, Oh, I didn't know he died. You know, that kind of a thing. So the, Sidebar conversation I had is who's going to have the dumbest last public statement, Crosby or Roth? Because the last Roth statement was the Eddie's uncultured Rolling Stone article thing. The one before that was the uh, there are two singers, uh, me and Pink. <laughs> right. Those are the those are the last two comments we've gotten out of Dave. So he might be on track to have the the, the worst last tweet or, or social media comment of, of any famous rock star. <laughs> I no doubt he would wear that championship belt proudly getting back to the Sharon thing. Yeah. Um, as I'm looking through this and I remember this as well, this stuck in my head. Be, I think Sharon gave the template. What I think should be the, uh, what I think should be the way the tribute should work. And that is he told, he said, uh, I guess him and Eddie Trunk were talking that that you get this A-list team of musicians together, mm-hmm. much in the same way the music world came together to pay f- tribute to Freddie Mercury. Exactly. So yes. if you're going to have Michael and Alex as the rhythm section back there, you get a rotating cast of guitar players, right? Everybody paying tribute. A rotating cl- uh, cast of singers. Maybe it's Gary Sharon and Nuno doing Ain't Talking About Love. Why not? Sure. Sure, right? And then you do a finale of a couple songs with Dave and Sammy. Um, you know, and I'm sure they won't be able to actually touch the touch the wood of the stage at the same time. So somebody's got to go off from stage left. The other one's got to come back on stage right. I mean, I can only imagine what that would be like. You, I, you'll, I don't think you'll ever, ever in this lifetime see them sharing a microphone together or trading verses on a song, uh, even, a cover, even a cover song, let's say, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's the blueprint. What Freddie Mercury, what Queen did, right? Remember, it was a huge that huge yeah. tribute with George Michael and Axel and everybody. And who, what was what was the what was the common denominator there? You had uh, that John Deacon left yet. You had the rhythm yeah. set. You had the rest of Queen backing the whole thing. Yeah, I think that that's what the Foo Fighters tributes in London and Los Angeles are slated to be as well. A mix and match of the people performing from the band who are with us and special guests. And that has potential to be a really wonderful, memorable, uniting thing. Remember, we want, if there's a tribute, we want it to be a uniting, hey, remember all the great stuff, everyone loved this kind of a tribute, not a, oh, Sammy's better. No, Dave's better, (laughs) which the internet will inevitably turn it into and I'll tell you what, it's a tribute to Eddie Van Halen. If something big was to happen and Sammy and Dave don't show up there, 
and it's still Michael and uh, Michael and Alex as a rhythm section. That would be really disappointing. Disappointing, but I'd still be curious about it. Yeah. How could you not be? Yeah, I really think anything is better than nothing. I, I had that exact opposite opinion after seeing Brian Wilson a couple of weeks back where literally it was a person in a questionably vegetative state being pushed out who wasn't playing or singing for most of the set and wasn't with it. Now, that's an, that's an extreme. We rarely, rarely see something like that. Like, cl- I'd say one degree up from that is like George Clinton when he's not on stage for more than 25 minutes of the show. And it's just, (laughs) (laughs) I saw, I saw that show out of all places, the Minnesota state fair in 2017 or 2018, which was very strange, but yeah, George was up there for a handful of songs and then there's a roving cast of 20 other people. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, I'm saying th- there's a level or two above that you can go where it doesn't have to be Dave on the stage for 90 minutes. It could be Dave on stage for two or three songs and it would be perfect. And nobody nobody would realize his shortcomings, if he has any, from that minimal exposure. You know, set it up with a great video package and then he comes on and, you know, does his way through Panama and Jump or whatever and you know what? Leave them on a high note. I have you seen the from like seven, eight years ago when Roth came out during the, the Dave Grohl birthday concert at the floor. Oh, yeah, he came out bald and did Panama. Exactly. And I think a second song. I'm pretty sure he did two songs. Maybe it was Beautiful Girls. He did another 70s Van Halen kind of song, I remember. And Unchained, maybe. Either way. Yeah, boy, I can't remember Panama. I just remember him walking down that ramp and waving high. And then it's like, as he, before he takes the hat off, is he? Oh, shit. Yes, he is. <laughs> Completely bald. But it was perfect. It, yeah, it, it worked. You have to assume a tribute concert for this is not for the diehards. It's for the casual fans. And he, Both. through charisma, can knock it out of the park if he knows what he's doing. If he just comes up and does Unchained in Panama... He could talk his way through those songs. Those are you know tiny what, kinds of songs. You know what I was watching for on that is that we, I, it was, it wasn't, it didn't turn into the Dave show. Yeah. He, pl- do you know what I mean? I was watching the interplay with him and Grohl and the other guys and they were all digging it. And it wasn't, he was, he stuck to the script. Do you get what I mean? I mean, yeah. It, it, him doing a quick guest spot like that when he knows the audience, so to speak, if you get that term. Yeah. is different than him doing a full-on solo show. You can see, and I like, it's more almost like a humble Dave. It's like, man, I'm just psyched to be here. I'm bringing the party. Let's do it. Humble Dave. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean, though? I can just, it's hard for me to explain. I can remember watching this going, I, I yeah, this is cool. He's, I mean, he's he's not overtly going, you know, doing, he didn't come up there with a Jack Daniels bottle or anything. It wasn't about him. It was about Dave's birthday. And he, you know, was like, showcasing Dave pointing to him and show you know what I mean and it was it was it was a cool vibe oh but by the way I saw something I wasn't supposed to see online (laughs) the Mex I have a little more detail uh context related to the gig that Dave did in 
Mexico in late May. It was in a resort. It was not at Cabo Wabo, as some people guessed, because he said, oh, he's in Cabo. It's at Cabo Wabo. It was not. Uh, it was inside a resort, and it was like an outdoor stage. It looked like in the middle of a lawn or a courtyard. Wait, go back. You saw this online. Wait, hold on. What? Somebody posted like a throwback memory. And uh, I saw their throwback memory and it was in Cabo. And I went to Cabo on a press trip like four years ago and I loved it. I loved everything but Cabo Wabo because it's like a hard rock cafe. It's it's not this paradise that it's made to sound like it is. It's really like a hard rock cafe that's going, yeah, party, tequila. It's really not this cool indie spot that like you think it would be. I always envision it. I've never been there, but I always envision it as, as the template, the very first for what what maybe at one point was hoped to be a chain. <laughs> you are not wrong at all, and it has since grown locations elsewhere and all that. But somebody who was there posted a photo of a stage in Cabo. And I'm like, oh, cool, man. I love Cabo. Which resort is that? And they told me. I said, oh, cool. Have a blast. And like, that was in May. I went, oh, <laughs> I know what this is. So it wasn't a club. It wasn't a rock venue. Is in the middle of a resort. I don't know if it was rented out, but it was open air. It was not to 2,000 people. It was a small shindig at a resort. Apparently, whatever happened, there was a complete blackout. Everybody had to put their cell phones. Except maybe in the band and crew. <laughs> right. But do you know what I mean? Nothing's yeah. I think of this. Nothing's leaked from this thing. No photos. Yeah, I, I not would, a snippet of video. I would gamble that video was taken. It's just. Yeah, you, ha you would have to ask the right people. The, there's zero chance the resort does not have it on tape. Okay, I'm not saying that. What about people in the audience is what I'm saying. Yeah, right. They kept, unless you figure out then whose birthday it was, and then you go through that person's social media, and they didn't hashtag the hell out of it. Right. If it's just a private event, and maybe it's 30 people, and that um, guy who's made a billion dollars in software NFTs and wanted Dave to play said, yeah, no mobile phones, guys. We're doing it right here. Come on down. Bam. Yeah, That'd I don't be a hell know of a party, I... right? You do the invite. I'm not. I'm. I'm flying you down here. You don't know who's going to be performing, but it's going to be a fucking blast. And you walk in there and you go, Jesus, what the hell is Jeremiah up to now? Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. I don't know if I really feel like putting in the two to three hours of like mental brain work to figure out whose birthday it was that yeah. rented out the resort and their party, and then find them on social media. And do that whole thing. Listen, you do enough investigatory work for this podcast, okay? Give yourself a break. Oh, oh, that reminds me. So another, we're not like a mailbag kind of podcast, but somebody kind of, a, a few different listeners have said, you guys should have on Jeff Falkowski. I think we talked about him once or twice in passing, but they're like, he's Dave's guitarist. He's probably doing these recordings that Ooh. you're talking about, the disco Dave stuff, because he was Dave's guitar teacher and there's one known recording that exists of dave uh, of jeff falkowski and and dave and it's some cover in portuguese of take sarajevo or some song like that and you can find it in youtube 
And somebody's like, you should have him on. He's Dave's guitar player. So I looked him up on LinkedIn. Not hard to find this gentleman. And it's like current, like Dave guitarist, like 2005 to current. And I reached out to somebody who's worked on and off with Dave in the past couple of years. And they're like, no idea who he is. He's not currently around. So it's it's one of those cases that turns out where the LinkedIn employment dates were not updated. Well, maybe he, maybe he maybe he put that page up in 2006 or 2000, a year late. What was it? 2003 to current 2004 to current. You said something like that, but no, he's updated his links LinkedIn. Okay. Assets then. I, so the question is if he did some recording with him at some point in time beyond this track, or if he was kept on retainer as a guitar teacher, or he's still giving Dave guitar lessons, but the plot thickens where his website was recently uh, deleted or hidden or taken down. So I think he's under the Dave NDA wall of, hey, here's a check. You can't I send anybody. I suppose if you're always on retainer, you could say you're still the current guitar player. Question is, is he still working with Dave? Right. I don't know. But a current person in the organization goes, never heard of this guy. Interesting. Way to chase it down, my friend. Does yeah. does anybody owe him money? Does anybody does he have, it, does, he have it, does he have any unclaimed funds? <laughs> you know what? I, I did not look and I should don't tell him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I should you can't look for anybody, look for me first, would you? <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. But uh, something we were talking about in a previous episode or off mic, were we talking about the 2001 Philly show, the Dave show at the Philadelphia Spectrum? Yeah. On YouTube? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Like, people don't talk. It was for, it was for a radio station. For I, it was, I think it was for WMMR, definitely a Philly rock station. Right, because at that time, Dave would not be headlining the spectrum. No, no. It's a question of who else was on the billing at that time, but... Wow, is that a great find of Dave at his, you know, not his prime, but among the best moments in his career, I would say. I'll have to look it up. Who's in the band? Do you remember at that time? Bart Walsh is on guitar, bass. I don't know. Is that, I don't think it's Todd Jensen. I think it's James Lomenzo. And drums is Ray Luzier. Right. Ray was in the band for a, for a good while. From what I gather, he joined in 97 or 98, and he was there till 2004, 2005. He mm -hmm. said, when I interviewed him years ago, it was six years, but I'm wondering if his math is off, because I know I saw him live in 2004, maybe 2005 as well, and he played on the DLR Band album, which came out in 98, which, depending if you believe Dave or not, was recorded in 10 days, three weeks, or months, but uh, he played, he was the only drummer on that album. Yeah, I've it, always, I'm assuming, he always seems like in interviews and stuff I've read and just, he seems like he's a really super nice guy, just a monster yeah. drummer. Still in corn, like 15-ish years later, he had a cool band between Dave and Korn called Army of Anyone. Did you ever hear that band? Oh, I love them. Yes, it's, yeah, it's. Okay, so Army of Anyone, uh, uh, Richard Patrick from Filter. 
Yes. And the DeLeo brothers from Stone Temple Pilots and Ray Luzier. I love that album. Once a year I pull it out. I am I will basically listen to the DeLeo brothers do anything. Any yep. side project. I'm one of the few people who actually like talk show. I I'll, love talk show. I, every Stone Temple Pilots record. I think that the the semi-acoustic record they just put out last year is amazing. There's a song on there called Fare Thee Well that'll make you cry. It's just gorgeous. And this, uh, what's his name? Jeff Gutt, the new singer. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I rue what might have, what I, I sadly rue and think what could have been with if, if, had Chester not committed suicide because that EP they did was great. So yeah, I know Army of Anyone, and I thought that was just like this is a dream band here. Are you kidding? I love Filter, I, Ray Luzier, and again the the amazing DeLeo brothers. Sorry, I got all excited there. Oh, I don't, I don't blame you. I was randomly listening to a lot of Sun Temple Pilots a couple of weeks ago. Same here. <laughs> Did you have you heard the deluxe version of Tiny Music that that's I, now on Spotify and all that? I have not. I have not. It's one of those ones where I went. It you know it came in this big spl splash, and I follow Stone Temple and I follow Robert DeLeo on Instagram, and it was one of these things where it's like I got to pick this up, and it's just add to a a big list of things I got to pick up. Wow. Okay. Well, and I love Tiny Music. That's such a great album. It is an excellent album, and a unique thing about this this deluxe version is, of, of course, as the regular album, and then they have a track by track of the album, but in progress versions or early versions of the songs. So you'll be listening to it and go, "Oh, that's an extra chorus. Oh, different guitar sound. Oh, they didn't have the guitar solo yet. Oh, Scott Weiland is doing mumble." filler lyrics where he has the melody but not the lyrics there's like good stuff and there's awful stuff at the same time but it's really unique to hear all that and where i'm going with all that is i know the first van halen album was recorded really quickly but are there in progress or alternate versions of things from those sessions well Good question, because I always thought everything was pretty much they had this locked and loaded because were there any differences in any changes from anything that was in those first couple of records that were previously on the Gene Simmons tapes? Oh, yeah, the Gene Simmons tapes, like Running with the Devil, I believe, starts with the chorus on the Gene. That's Simmons. right. I can't remember if there was major changes or not. I should. I haven't listened to that stuff in ages, um, but. I always got the impression that they just had this stuff so tight and so nailed down from years of rehearsal from the block. Remember Dave talking about yes. the block? <laughs> 75 blocks. Yeah. Then the band is ready. And even though I have not been at any of those blocks. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, even though I do not go to rehearsal or sound checks. Yeah, uh, my, my perspective on all this, if you're going to do the timeline of when did Darren go from finding Dave absolutely charming and hilarious and amazing to, oh my God, I can't believe a damn thing the guy says. That really happened with the interview that we had with Rocket Rashad and his son, who's his son is killing it with the band Haim. Haim, Haim, however you want to say it. He's their like drummer and sometimes guitar player. And they, you know, played Madison Square Garden as headliners and just brought out Taylor Swift and all that. <laughs> Rocket. That was one of the only interviews that you and I have done where the people weren't quick to go, oh, but that's Dave. <laughs> like, that was the first time that it was like, that guy's a dick. <laughs> I got I to tell you, I 
I often forget, I got to remind myself that because I've had him on such a pedestal for so long, which is sure. when there's any sort of wobbling in that pedestal, of which, let's be fair, we're not fanboys. There's a lot yeah. where there's any kind, I just cringe. I talk about the cringeworthy moments. I go, oh, man, don't make it hard for me, man. But then I also realize, you know what? Everybody's fucking human. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, I cringe for Sammy sometimes, too. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. I cringe for him big time. But you know what? Let's say you are a Sammy fan. You're still going to get a new album every two to three years. You get your annual birthday bash three or four day thing where he brings out some famous friends. He might have a TV show or a documentary or a book or something like that. Every two years, he'll have a new spirit brand on the market that they'll offer. He's super, he's super active. He's got the TV show. But you know what drives me nuts? He just put out new music. And I was listening to Chicken Foot the other day. Yeah. Why wasn't there ever another Chicken Foot record? I was reading into that. I don't know if this is true. I don't know if it's that Chad Smith got too busy because the Chili Peppers got active again and Satriani got active and they kind of went, oh, well, we'll just It's call been it years. I, I remember several years ago, something came up. I think Joe was asked or somebody was asked. And I think one of the Sammy was saying he didn't have songs and it's just... I mean, I kind of got the impression that this is pre-COVID. I kind of got the impression that they just weren't willing, ready, or financially wanted to like get all these these expensive guys together to get into a studio and record a record. I believe so. Now, I'm I'm putting you on the spot here. Was that was I, I got the impression from that? Was the second Chicken Foot album a Best Buy exclusive or one of those like store? You can only buy it in this store kind of deals. I think it was. And they were doing a lot of exclusives exclusive back then. Remember, Chinese Democracy was the Best Buy exclusive when it finally came out on, on CD. Yeah, there was like a Police Greatest Hits or DVD that was. There was an Elton John one, of course. And I, al I always love the fact that they called their second record Chicken Foot 3. Yes, I, I think that that was stolen from the Traveling Wilburys' second album being Volume <laughs> 3. That's right. That's right. Another all-star band, uh, which I'll defend. But I'm just wondering with Chicken Foot, if Sammy's accountants kind of got together when you make this much money and whoever, you make this much money when it's you, Michael, Joe, and... Uh, Whatever drummer, mm, stick with the solo thing. You own it. It's easier. I think he's just fine no matter what. I don't know. I, I, but you can easily blow $100,000 or more spend a lot of time in, a, in, a, in a, a great studio. And again, how many came out from guys? The whole Def Leppard record came together, and I love it, came together. None of them were in the studio live cutting it together. They were all sending each other tracks and stuff over over two years. Right. And supposedly Rick Allen did. And, th and then one producer put it all together. Did you hear that rumor What's that Rick Allen did not play on the new Def Leppard album that it's drum programming? I did hear that rumor. And I, I, one of the interviews, they did a lot of press for that album. And they did say that. I remember one of them was like, and then Rick sent his tracks or something like that. Or so I, I don't know. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of programming with them anyway. Yeah. It, you know how people, all make I know is I love the record. 
yeah, it does. It does have a few great tracks on it, like every Leopard album. But I kind of feel like you know how you start making excuses for grandparents and and parents You're like they're eh, they're getting a little older. You know, the the dog has accidents and eh, he's getting a little older. I feel like a large chunk of this podcast has come. <laughs> Our favorite arts are getting a little older. Yeah. Well, I mean, you end up making excuse again. It's folks you've had on a pedestal for a really, really, really long time. I mean, yeah, when when Kiss got caught a couple months ago with the backing tracks, after all the time of, you know, this is all live and those guys, I mean, and there was rumors. And then when it was pretty much irrefutable, oh, my gosh, the Kiss Nation. I mean, so and you definitely had people that slagged them to high heaven, but you had a lot of folks were just saying, well, listen, they're 70 years old and... <laughs> I mean, I take no stance on it one way or another, but uh, I mean, cheap trick is out this this uh, Rick Nielsen sprained his ankle a couple weeks ago on stage. If you see uh, if 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 you go to see cheap trick now, you're not seeing Rick. Robin, Robin, uh, Robin Zander Jr. is playing is playing lead guitar. I didn't know that. Yeah, and they've done that. They've done that before a couple years ago when he when Rick had like I guess really bad pneumonia or something. So. Wow, I didn't know that. Now, I know this is not the Cheap Trick cast as much as I'd like it to be at times uh, because we'd have red, like regular news and, and things that are happening and new music to talk about. But when Robin Zander Jr. performs lead guitar, does he do all the guitar changes and the faces like Rick? No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like handsome and playing the parts. Right, right. Wow. And he's a, certainly a, an unbelievably capable musician. When Tom was out with his heart surgery last year, he was playing 12-string bass. Wow. Okay. I need to look into this. Uh, I was thinking of seeing Cheap Trick in two weeks or so with Rod the Mod here at Jones Beach. But, oh, TBD on that one. It's kind of interesting, though. I mean, at what point do you not replace somebody and cancel a gig? I mean, promoters have insurance. If Robin was out, would it would his son step in for him? And do you know what I mean? I mean, at some oh. point, where do you draw the line? Yeah, there were uh, there was one show. Was it last summer where Robin Zander went home a day or two early to prep for a hurricane in Florida, and basically everyone in Seattle stepped up, like Jeff Amen. Yes, but day. that's a one-off, last-minute thing, and that ends up being kind of cool. If you're sh- if if you spent a bunch of money and you traveled really far to see them in Des Moines or someplace, <laughs> and Rick and Robin aren't there, you can be a little bummed out. And so, as I spend a lot of time on the Cheap Trick fan pages, various fan pages, everybody they're saying, well, you know, it would be nice if he just made uh, nice if he made a uh, comment about it. I'm going to be back soon or something. And and everybody's like, he can do whatever he wants. He's 71 years old. Injuries <laughs> are going to happen. And and he doesn't know us anything. And and then to the same people, it's like, well, it's still a great cheap trick, so- cheap trick show. And 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 bravo that they keep in the family and that Robin can Robin Jr. can step up. And Again, where do you draw the line? Here's what I'll tell you where you draw the line when there's no original members at all. Because a few years back, the mm-hmm. only original member of Foreigner is Mick Jones. Yes. And a few years back, Mick was out sick and they still played some gigs, to which at that point, that is now definitively a tribute act. Agreed. Agreed. That is the only example of the zero. Actually, no, Blood, Sweat, and Tears is zero members. And there's like two or three different Blood, Sweat, and Tears is on the road at any given time. There's the Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and then there's the David. 
Clayton Thomas of Blood, Sweat, and Tears one. Right. And probably Al Cooper also. So that would be three. Right. Now, some might argue, well, it's just, it's kind of just a change in the franchise. It's just a change in the franchise. And to which I also, I always think back to, uh, to Kiss's analogy. It's like, well, you know, it's kind of like a football team. There's going to be other players there. It's like, (sighs) yeah, but there's no one's going out with a second new England Patriots. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I know this is you- all, this is all uncharted territory because we're really in two generations, three generations, the first generation, first and second generation of real rock and roll, classic rock from the late sixties into the seventies, those folks, that time's coming to an end. And if you're in a band, it's one thing, no one's going to go up, no one's going to go out with the Ted Nugent tribute show. Do you get what I'm saying? If you're a solo performer, it's one thing. But if you're a band and you got trademarks and you can make some additional money and I, do you see licensed tribute bands? You do. Someday? Uh, I, I heard a really good rumor that there's a Tool tribute band that's basically sponsored and licensed by Tool. Or at least Tool gives them materials and tips and, and helps promote them because they feel, well, if we're not touring, they're helping keeping our name alive. I expect with Kiss, it'll be the exact opposite where kiss charges them licenses and all that to use their intellectual property but you know if if this point in time um because a really smart guy in the music business who managed acdc and aerosmith a lot of great bands he was explaining to me how the new arenas that have been built are generally lower capacity arenas they're trying to be seven to twelve thousand instead of arenas they used to be accommodating bigger crowds to get sports teams right Eighteen thousand arenas they got an nba franchise or whatever and hockey now they're building them smaller more intimate and able to be uh how do you say like curtained off or capacity kinds of things if you put together an official licensed van halen and by that i mean we're not saying it's any original members, past or present, nothing like that. But if it was like using Van Halen stage props and you went in going, this is a sanctioned Van Halen that's great. And it was a 20 to $30 ticket and you're seeing it in arena, uh, an arena or what looks like an arena, I would go to that in a heartbeat. Like you knew that you were capturing the vibe of all that. Mark my words, I would go to that in a heartbeat. A scaled down kiss that's 20 to $30, and you knew that you were not seeing any original members, and it was official and licensed, I would see that. So I would hope that they do these kinds of things to preserve the legacy, not as cash grabs, but legacy thing. Hey, you feel like going to see Van Halen tonight? Sure. Now, have I lost to 100% or 50%? I'm just thinking here, music's a commodity. It's a business. I get it. I mean, you. I think you want some sort of uniformity, right? You walk into a McDonald's in in Detroit. You want that. You want the yeah. same great service, and the, you want everything pretty much to be the same, right? In uh, in Minneapolis, or whatever. I mean, but again, it's not. It sure it's a commodity, but I don't know. There's it's music. There's an emotion to it. There's it's. I I don't know. I kind of get where you're coming from, and I was just sitting there thinking. It might look like I'm staring off into space, but I'm sitting there. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, would I? Because I've never seen a tribute act. I don't like. To, I 
I've just never got into tribute bands and, or, and there's, there's a really great band out of here. I think they're called hairball. If I remember correctly, these guys are serious players. They are really good. And they go out there doing, you know, as the name implies a lot of hair metal and stuff. And they're kind of, here's another good example. I never really got into, um, Oh God, who's the parody band? Um, steel band. Yes. I never really got into steel. Now I love cover songs. Right. But to me, the whole tribute thing where you're where you're using the likeness and everything and it's no I just never I've never went to go see, uh, you know, uh, Back in Black, the ACDC tribute band down at McGillicuddy's. You know what I mean? It's, and I don't mean to it sounds like I'm denigrating it. It's just never been my thing. So I don't know where how to think about that. If it were the stage show, so you saw that the speaker box background and a replica of Alex's drum riser. If you were able to recreate that in an arena thing, it's not sad. I, I don't like cover bands and tribute bands. When it's in a club, it just feels like it's sad in a way at times, for the most part. Like seeing that's the thing. I like cover bands, but I like if I'll go see a cover band. I mean, I was at a. I mean, essentially, I, it's almost like a wedding band thing, right? Yeah. I, I, I went to I went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and they, the band they actually had a real band, and you know, it's called a cover band, a wedding band. They're doing songs all over the map, really good. The drummer was a monster. This guy was amazing. I mean, they were all good musicians, so it they weren't note for note. They they they, they toyed around with the tempos a little bit. It was just, you know, they extended arrangements. They did things like that. It wasn't just, they weren't just doing a note-for-note note copy of the song. I like cover songs that take chances. I like a variety of cover songs. So if I go see a cover band, I'm out at a bar somewhere, I'm like, oh, shit, they're doing that song. Huh, I never heard anybody do a Sly Stone song like that. Do you know what I mean? As opposed to going just to hear 45 minutes of as close as we can possibly get to ACDC, ACDC cover songs. With the props and an arena setting and the right lighting and the right sound and some tips and tricks from the band, I might, I might be swayed to All go. All right, if you can get if you can get a permit to bring in a Civil War cannon or a Liberty or a Bell somewhere, you got me. Yeah. Well. Uh, sh should we go to the interview? This yes, week? we've been all over the map here. I go into these things with a full attention span, and it's, it's later in the day, and I need caffeine, so I apologize. Hey, no, it's not you. It's on me uh, sidebarring on the sidebar. <laughs> I, the sidebar. I always say we start in one place and we always end up somewhere else, which is good. <laughs> it's, not a bad, it's not a bad thing. But uh, this, this interview with Sam and Grafia is a little bit of a story that I'll make quick. But did you ever see the Joe Piscopo HBO special from, I think, 86 or 87, where he does a David Lee Roth parody? Man. Somewhere in the back of my mind, way back, I know I've seen this thing because I used to think he was pretty funny when he did the Frank Sinatra bits and the yeah. whole thing. And I remember seeing a lot of comedy on HBO back then, the Young Comedian specials. Yeah. That's where I first saw Dice and Bob Saget and Sam yeah. Kinison. I think all those guys were on the same damn show. I think uh, so. And just a murderous row of future great comics. So no, to answer your question, I vaguely remember it. Uh, this special does not age well, to put it nicely, if you watch Joe Piscopo doing a rap parody as well and using a word or two that should not be used. But he has this 
visual parody of Yankee Rose that he does live on stage and something that's kind of making fun of David Lee Roth. So I was going, like, who hasn't been interviewed about Roth? Piscopo. Okay, well, Piscopo is not uh, hand, is not answering my inquiries, weirdly. He's very busy hosting AM talk radio and performing at offbeat casino comedy clubs. But I was looking through the credits. I said, okay, IMDb, who wrote this? Okay, Sam and Graffia. Okay, great. So I tracked down Sam, and he said, sure, I'll do the interview. Then I realized Sam worked on the 88 comedy special, not this 86 one. <laughs> but I said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I made I made a mistake here, Sam. He goes, oh, no, I, I, I met with Dave once. I, I had a meeting with Dave. So I asked <laughs> And it turns out he did. Uh, the the special that I'm talking about turns out to be have uh, been written with Robert Wool, aka Arliss. He oh, co-wrote. Sure, I remember him. He co-wrote that Piscopo thing. So now the question is, did Robert Wool get burned by Dave? So what did so what did they meet about? Well, we're going to hear about that in the interview. But Sam was did almost. I, did, I, did I kill the lead? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We we can bill him as almost crazy from the heat actor, Sam and Graffia, But Sam continues to work steadily these days. You've seen him in Barry on HBO. He oh, my God. I love that show. A lot. And uh, for like 40 years or so of acting. And I pry into the development deal era of comedy, which he was part of. Very cool. Awesome. Man, that's some... I love that. That's some great detective work. And then accidentally, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. This is be this is better than it could have been. Yeah, like wait a and minute. It would have been. No, Dave. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a, a quick little story. And hearing this basically tells me and tells us that Crazy from the Heat was a thing. Like it wasn't just a script and I got a concept. It was actually going to be made. It was actually something. And I don't think that history really remembers it like that. It goes like, oh, Dave was going to have a movie and it, it fell through. It's like, no, it was really a movie that was about to be made and everything was in place on it. You know what? I'm So if he talked to him about a role in the movie. Yeah. I wonder if there was a casting director. How far did it get? There what was. There was what, a location manager. What I'm, other names were attached? I'm waiting to hear if we're allowed to use the interview that I taped with somebody who is like assistant director on it. But he talked about location scouting. Interesting. Yeah. So this is one of the things that Dave was correct about because <laughs> you, you would think that because he sued CBS pictures to get a big settlement, which he did, that it was kind of a, Oh, we were about to make it and you stopped it and you caused me these damages, but it's actually was going to happen. Perhaps a lot of the potential locations ended up being the locations for the videos in Edom and Smile and uh, from from Edom and from Edom and Smile in particular. I think that's correct. Crazy for going crazy and Yankee Rose. <laughs> uh, I believe you know going back to our Durga McBroom interview, she was supposed to be cast in it. It sounds like, and she was yeah. in the videos. So I think that there was a Dave universe. And that was part of the bigger uh, conversation. Now, where that was going to go is a is a different story. <laughs> another good one. Another scoop. We can call it a scoop. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's really going into the weeds. But if you're still listening 58 or so minutes in, you must really like weeds. <laughs> we start one place, we go somewhere else, always. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this and making it happen, Steve. You too, my friend. We will have uh, more episodes upcoming, a few more interviews. I think we need to get a couple prior guests back here as well to talk stuff. And we got some other ideas we're working on. Definitely. Yes. And uh, if you do have more mysteries or mailbag oriented things and or you're also under 40 years of age, <laughs> let us know. DLRcast at Outlook.com or at the DLRcast on the Twitter. Can you hear me okay, Sam? I can, yes. <laughs> right on time. Have you always been the punctual creative type? I, I am, actually. Uh, I, I went to business graduate school before I became an actor, so I kind of always bring that stuff with me. And, and also, my dad just like instilled in me when I was a kid growing up that it was very unprofessional to show up late for anything. So my wife like it's not happy because i'm usually the guy who's 45 minutes early going okay you know we gotta go we gotta go <laughs> i've heard it said that you know nine times out of ten it works out the you know if you're on time you're late that approach so nine times out of ten pretty much your way is the right way of doing it and then every now and then you hear somebody who gets the job because they're late the person goes oh i like that vibe that person has the right attitude I, I could never be that guy. I, I've heard people say that, you know, he didn't want the job that badly and he was really cool. And it was like, if he got it, great. If he didn't get it, that was okay too. I I, I would have to pretend to be that guy because it was like, yeah. you know, what they said be here at 11. I'm here at 11. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's, that's just my, my MO. The one out of 10 of those, I believe that's how Ed O'Neill got married with children. He showed up in his sweaty clothes from racquetball. He didn't care. And then went, that guy's perfect. So yeah, no, again, that, that I, I know a bunch of guys like that and that's who, that's who they are. They're not pretending to be that person. They are that person. I, I'm not that person. Uh, so again, when I, I, you know, the, what I've learned from being an actor is basically you're selling yourself. And yeah. so basically this is who I am and I couldn't be Ed O'Neill and I couldn't do what he does. So I just kind of show up and I'm me. And if they're buying that program, I'm good. If they're not buying my program, then fine. That's, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Well, you've identified yourself as an actor, but of course your extensive credits have work as a writer, a producer, a director. Was there a period of stand-up for you as well? Yeah, that's, that's kind of how the whole writing thing started. Um, I basically, I didn't have enough nerve to be a stand-up and actually stand up on stage and tell jokes. Sure. So I had a friend who was an actor and uh, I said to him, um, I, I could get up on stage if you could get up on stage and we'll be characters. And so he said, well, what do you exactly do you mean? And I said, well, we'll create characters We'll show up at the comedy club as those characters. We'll stay in character the whole time and then we'll leave. And he said, that's almost like performance art. And I said, yeah, I think it might be kind of a cool experiment. So he was from New Jersey mm -hmm. and he had a Pontiac Grand Prix mm -hmm. that was gigantic. And we came up with two characters. I was Sal Sirico. My, my legal name is Salvatore. So oh, I was I was Sal Sirico and he was Junior Carmelo and we showed up uh, at these comedy clubs 
and we had ridiculous clothes on, um, you know, gold chains and silk shirts. And he wore sunglasses the entire time. And we signed in as Sal and Junior. And the problem was the characters we were playing desperately wanted to be in show business, but we had no talent. And so we read joke books on stage we we did a, a we did a mind reading act where he wore a big turban and i would you know talk to the audience and he would get everything wrong it was i mean looking back on it now i don't i'm amazed that i had the nerve to do it but it was like surreal and we ended up getting a deal at universal to develop a pilot based on those two characters. Yeah. Which is, in talking to you earlier, that's how we met Joe Piscopo. That was the connection to Joe Piscopo's. We did, we got, we signed a deal with Universal to do a pilot. We wrote with two other writers writing the pilot. The pilot didn't sell, but Universal liked us and they had a deal with Piscopo to do a pilot for him. They put our characters, us, in his pilot. His pilot kind of sold, it sold, and then the head of production at ABC quit or got fired, depending on who you talk to, and the pilot died. So then Gary, my writing partner, and I went on from Universal to another production company who had a deal with Joe to do a comedy special at UCLA, and we got hired because we had the connection with Joe to write the comedy special for for him wow and, the, yeah the and, almighty holding deal combined yeah with i mean again yeah i i don't even know if they have those anymore and you know now they have you get a deal if you're a very very established writer but right, literally sure. i mean one of the funny stories is we went to universal we went they took us up in the black tower we met everybody and that afternoon they said okay we want to sign a deal with you and we didn't have a literary agent at that time we didn't have a lawyer and we were like yeah well sure okay uh that sounds good and we're like well, what does that even mean and then after we signed the deal we didn't even know how to write a a, a, a script so right. i went You're to naturally funny you're not structured trained funny I went, I, there was a store in Hollywood called Samuel French, which sold theater books and they had a book on formatting yeah. and I bought a book on formatting. We didn't have a computer. We had a typewriter and we started typing up our notes on the typewriter and then we would bring them to Universal and there was somebody who typed it up and put it into the proper format for a script. And it took us about two weeks to kind of figure out, oh, okay, this is how it's supposed to be the margins and this is how it's supposed to be invented. And so we kind of backed into being writers and then we ended up writing together for 10 years and made a pretty nice living as, as writers. Um, so it was, it was uh, you know, my whole career has been a series of odd occurrences that basically I was in graduate school and left graduate school to be an actor because a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to do a teeny part in a play and I remember going back to graduate school and telling the dean yeah I'm going to be doing a play in a garage for no money and I'm more excited about that than I am about taking finals at graduate school so maybe I'm 
we shouldn't be going to graduate school any longer. And he was like, yeah, I, I think that's probably a good, <laughs> a good thought. So uh, yeah. again, it, it hasn't been like I had like a plan for most of the stuff that's, you know, a lot of good stuff has happened and I've worked really hard to then kind of get to the next level. But a lot of it was just kind of like, okay, you, you, you want to, you want to write a pilot? Yeah, sure. Okay. You want to write a comedy social? Yeah. Uh, all right. We could do that. You know, that's one of the shortcomings in my opinion of IMDB where it's wonderful that you can look people up, but it rarely has the complete credits because it doesn't oh, no. usually yeah. have pilots. It doesn't have stuff that was done under holding deals or development deals. Oh so yeah. No. When I look at your credits, it looks like, Hey, he worked every year. He did stuff, but clearly it doesn't have a lot of the stuff that you wrote. No, no. And again, and it's very weird when you have like a holding deal, because again, as bizarre as it sounds, they pay you to be funny. Yeah. And you come, all you do is you sit in your office and you try to come up with funny ideas. And some of them are not so funny and some of them are funny and you just keep turning them in and they go, no, 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 no. Oh, maybe. Okay. Write that. And then you write a script and it goes nowhere or goes to the next level and they try to pitch it and move it around different places and it ends up not being sold but for a year you're writing five days a week you not eight hours i'll i'll, I'll be honest and say we we fudged and we probably only wrote right. we we played around for about two hours out of the day and then took an hour lunch and then we wrote for because we were we were like actors and then we were like 10 year old kids you know we would go to the commissary and eat lunch and chat with people oh you were on the lot oh yeah we were oh, on wow. we were on we were on the lot and and again you know you'd walk around all we were like tourists we were you know let's go look at the prop shop that looks like it'd be kind of cool and then the funniest i mean weirdest funniest part was then we didn't work at universal anymore because they didn't pick up our option so we called and we had some connections there and we were going to go in and pitch some ideas to producers who were on the lot and we drive up and here's the studio guard who we've known scotty who was this great guy who we've known for the year and we're pals with him and, we, and he's like well boys there's no parking place for you you have to like go park on the street and walk and we're like but but you know you know us and he's like yeah i know but you still have to go park on the street and they had painted over our parking our parking space oh. and, and put somebody else stencils somebody else's name on it so it was like wow that is fame, a tough lesson that name is so ephemeral <laughs> we, we think that only happens in movies and tv shows oh, no. that actually happened in real life yeah no it was very it was you know and i mean there's a ton of those kind of stories where you know you're you're ticketed for the big time until you're not ticketed for the big time yeah the, for example, one of the biggest comedians of all time, Dave Chappelle, the name of his production company is Pilot Boy Productions. And the photo of him for it is him in shackles. And you go, ha ha, that's funny. And then you go, no, that guy had over 20 pilots. He just yeah. went holding deal, the holding deal. Well, for a time, that's all we did. You know, we went from option deal to option deal to option deal. And that's what was keeping us alive was we weren't really selling anything because it never got made, but you know, it's like, here's $1,500, here's $1,000, here's two grand, here's a step deal. When you turn in the script, you get paid X amount of dollars. And if it goes to the next level, you get paid X amount of dollars. So, I mean, literally 
there were times where we went, we got to get another option. <laughs> we got to get another option deal because I can't pay the mortgage if we don't get another option deal. And so we would literally, my partner and I, our writing partner would sit down and we go, okay, go through the files, find anything that we think is relatively good that we can try and get somebody to give us some money so we can, you know, make it till next month. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a lot of rejection. The fact that you're still acting and you're still in the business is a testament towards your ability to just not take no for an answer. I suppose, or stupidity, one of the two. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, again, l- luckily the last, if you take COVID out of the equation, yeah. uh, the last you know, 10 years have been very good to me. So I can't really complain. You know, the, it's a roller coaster ride, but you, know, you do one national commercial and suddenly you know, you're in pretty decent financial shape for the next three or four months. So you well, know. that's another thing. IMDb does not list commercials for no, the I know. part. Well, I, IMDb, I remember, and I think it was 1989 or something like that, I was at some workshop and they were, they said, there's this new thing coming called IMDb. And everybody was like, well, what is that? You know, there's the player's directory. Why do we need IMDb? We have this big phone book that has everybody listed. And and so when IMDb took off, my agent said, well, you got to go on IMDb because you have like over a hundred credits. You got to tell them to put your credits up there. And so I, and, and there's nobody to talk to. You have to do right. it all via the computer and they make it as difficult as they possibly can for you to get stuff on. And I kept getting these emails back. Okay. Do you have an air date for yeah, right. the episodes of general hospital that you did in 1986? Like, who, who has an air date of episodes of a soap opera from 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Uh, do you know what the title was of the soap opera episode that you did in 19, in February of 1988? No. Uh, and, and now, now I, I save all the call sheets. I save every script. I save, I list who was the director, who was the, because I never did any of that stuff. And also, Nothing was digitized. Right, I did right. all these TV shows in the '80s that got canceled after four episodes. That I don't know where I don't know where they went to, but they just disappeared. They're not anywhere. And you know, producers producers didn't know about any of that kind of stuff, and they didn't know they could make money. You know, thirty years after the fact, I still get residuals from The Incredible Hulk and and The Fall Guy because they're rerunning. They're rerunning somewhere. I don't oh, know where they're rerunning. Or, yeah, yeah Meat TV like is that. the greatest invention <laughs> of all time. It's like for actors like me, it's like I get a residual check for four fifty, and it's like the the, the Fall Guy was was on somewhere in the country, or or uh, you yeah. know Beauty and the Beast was on somewhere in the country, and you know it's like okay, I get some free money. So with all those holding deals and all the writing projects and the drafts. Where was your meeting with David Lee Roth in the midst of that? Because the movie Crazy from the Heat was slated for 1985-1986. Yeah, I was going to say I thought it was the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, the, I, the thing that sticks out in my head is I, I'm generally pretty healthy, but I had a cold. Um, and uh, I almost didn't go to the meeting because I had a cold. But I thought, you know, I'm almost over the cold and I'm probably not contagious or anything. So it'll be okay. 
but my voice was kind of scratchy as a result of the cold. So I go in and meet with him and I'm kind of, and I say, I apologize, you know, my, sorry, my voice is kind of scratchy because I got a cold and he starts talking to me and his voice is really scratchy. And I say, do you have a cold also? And he goes, no, it's a lifetime of rock and roll. And it was basically from being, you know, the front man for Van Halen for all those years. He had, I think, probably burned some of his vocal cords. Um, but yeah, he was very funny. And I remember I thought his his videos that he was, he was Diamond Dave, I think were the videos, were very clever and very funny. And he was kind of poking fun at himself the rock star image he was kind of making fun of himself and i remember we talked about that that so many actors are unwilling to poke fun at themselves and take themselves so seriously that they're serious artistes and he said well rock stars are even worse than that and so you know we had a nice conversation I, I never I obviously didn't do the movie and I never really gave it much thought. My my approach is, you know, you take it very seriously when you walk in the door, you do your best. And then as soon as you walk out of the door, it's like, OK, whatever it goes, it goes away because I don't have any control over it. So I never until you mentioned it, I had actually totally forgotten, <laughs> forgotten all about uh, that that meeting. Was this a case where the studio or your agent put you up for it? Yeah, yeah. I had a manager. I had a very good manager at the time. And and she and I had talked about David Lee Roth, and I thought it was funny. And, and even though I wasn't born in, in L.A., I grew up kind of my teen years in L.A. And so I was a huge rock and roll fan. So I saw just about everybody who was anybody because there were so many great clubs in LA, mm-hmm. Zari's, the Whiskey, the Roxy, all those places, a lot of bands played in those before they got to be stadium era bands. Yeah. And I never saw Van Halen, um, but I knew of Van Halen because I lived in Sherman Oaks and they lived in Pasadena, so it wasn't very far away. Um, so everybody kind of knew about Van Halen. They were this kind of really hip kind of semi-local band that everybody thought was going to get really hot. And so I had talked to my manager about uh, Van Halen because I remember saying to them, I think, I'm surprised nobody's made a movie about the band because between the inner relations between David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen and the fact that they had this kind of meteoric rise from sure. being club guys to being superstars that, and, you know, kind of <coughs> timely end of Eddie Van Halen. I was really surprised that nobody made a movie of them. And that was the conversation. And then she said, well, he's doing a movie. You want to go in for it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I, again, I, I don't know how far, I, I got in the process because I went in and had a nice meeting with them. And then again, I promptly forgot about, forgot about the project. Eventually they finished a script with uh, Jerry Persigian. I think I think oh, yeah. I'm right. Yeah. And you can buy the script in a script store in LA <laughs> or an online thing. And supposedly they costumed the movie and it was far along, but CBS pictures just ceased to be, they didn't make the movie and he got a settlement out of it for suing. I think he got three or four million dollars for not making a movie. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, do you remember, though, if there was 
a treatment or any kind of notes you were given or was it just hey do you want to meet dave for lunch yeah no it was that it was basically i don't think i i don't know if they had a script if they did i didn't i never got a chance to read it it was basically he i think there was like a one page kind of description of what they wanted to try and do and who they were looking for and i i i have played a lot of when I was younger, I played a lot of sleazy bad guys and I also played a lot of sleazy lawyers. And I think it was to, I think they were considering me to play a sleazy lawyer. Um, that was, I think. Got that, it. That Got it. And, and as you alluded to earlier, I reached out because I saw your name on a Joe Piscopo special. And the one before that had a, an overt David Lee Roth parody that he did of the song Yankee Rose, where it's Joe in a wig and doing a lot of the Roth stage moves. But I remember seeing a photo or two of Joe Piscopo and David Lee Roth in the mid eighties, maybe at the comedy store or something like that. Any idea, were they in the same circles because they were superstars at the same time? Uh, uh, that seems unlikely, but <laughs> that seems, I, I don't know David Lee Roth at all, but I mean, knowing Piscopo pretty well, I, I doubt it. The only thing, Joe was doing all these characters and he 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 did a lot of research, you know that. So he he did like an impersonation. It wasn't like a parody. He actually did a pretty spot on impersonation of the person. His Frank Sinatra was pretty remarkable, yeah. and that that might have been what he you know he might have been hanging out with David Lee Roth to try and get his mannerisms down, or he might have gone to some shows or whatever, or maybe David Lee Roth thought. It was funny that somebody was doing an impersonation of him. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, Joe's kind of a New Jersey guy, so I don't see him hanging out with David Lee Roth. But you never know. You never know. And speaking to Joe's talent, I think he was ahead of his time in terms of being a comedian that could also sing, dance, play instruments. Do you view it that way as well? Your time working with Joe. Well, the problem that Joe had was nobody could figure out what to do with him. Um, he, because he wasn't really a, a typical comedian. Um, he didn't stand up and tell jokes. He was kind of a lounge performer. He he did he did impressions. He sang. He put on costumes and did like full on you know impersonations of, of various people. He had these bizarre characters like Rappin' Fats and, and all these <laughs> oh, other yeah. characters that he that he made up. Yes. So the problem was, it wasn't like he was Jerry Seinfeld who could tell jokes the whole time or Ray Romano where you kind of based a show based on right. his yeah. life. So the, the pilot that we ended up working on with him, uh, he played Joe Piscopo. He played Joe Piscopo and part of the show was his act. And then part of the show was he was home. And, you know, uh, we, we wrote numerous drafts and, and he contributed to it and other writers contributed to it. And we never really got it to the point where it really kind of jumped off the page. It, you know, it was good and it probably would have worked and the, the networks liked it enough to give it a green light initially. But that was the problem was Joe wasn't like a really well-trained actor who could stretch and play something really really out of his wheelhouse but it was hard to find a way to use his talents for doing his kind of stage show mm -hmm. so that was that was the problem and i think you know we got to know his agent fairly well and 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 you know it was like oh he was joe piscopo you 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 bought joe piscopo 
that kind of big lug who showed up and he did his characters and that was and he was good at it mm -hmm. but it was like okay now what now what do we now what do we do um, that, so, that show uh, sorry to cut you off it sounds like what you were developing was gary shandling's show before larry yeah Sanders. yeah or it was you know going way back it was you know it was jack benny or george burns where they basically weren't really actors they played themselves and then what we what we suggested was kind of using gary shandling or jack benny as a model we said you know what you do is you just pack the show full of really funny character actors. And, and you know, we Gilbert Godfrey was going to play Joe's agent and all these other guys were going to be with a stunt coordinator for the show, for the show within the show was another stand-up comedian who was really funny. And we thought, you know, that's, that's what'll make the show sell is it's like Seinfeld. There's all these kind of characters that'll be breakout people because they'll be funny. Mm -hmm along with Joe and they'll give him somebody to play up. So that was our plan was to have it be a show within a show. And then we had all these really funny, I mean, one of the real beauties of the show was when we had auditions, all these comedians would come in and they would do their routines for us in, in an office, you know, 15 by 15, we'd sit in here'd be all these top name, you know, Gilbert Godfrey, you know, we laugh so hard. I, I, you know, Gilbert, Gilbert is a, is a particular taste and you have to, you know, love I, or hate. Gilbert. I have that taste. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think he's hysterically funny and, and, uh, and just, a, he's also just one of the sweetest guys. Yeah. And, the uh, out of character Gilbert Gottfried is a very timid. Yeah. Soft-spoken human being. Yeah, very nice family man. And yeah. you, you would never guess that from his his act, which is almost kind of, again, performance art. Yes. But we, we both, uh, both, you know, my writing partner, Gary, and I just absolutely loved him. He, he was funny and, and he was going to play Joe's agent. And, and you know, for, for those of you who, who may not know Gilbert, Joe, hey, it's Gilbert. How are you? You know, loud, over the top, obnoxious, but incredibly funny. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm making you talk about Piscopo and Godfrey and Roth. <laughs> let's 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 wrap up by asking, what are you working on at the moment in the in the near future that you're allowed to say that Deadline.com embargoes are not going to bar you from? Because you were on a great uh, episode of Barry, which yeah. I believe they announced today is coming back from a third season. Good. Good. Uh, maybe I'll be back on it. Hopefully, um, I, I have a novel that I I wrote that's on Amazon, which is called The Right Stiff, um, mm -hmm. which is a, a comedic uh, noir mystery. I just finished the second installment in the series. It's the Charlie McGinley mysteries. Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be four of them, hopefully by the end of the by the end of the year. Um, I'm going to Louisiana in about two weeks to work on a feature film which I can't talk about too much more other than to say it's a, it's a it's kind of a sophisticated horror film uh and so that's kind of cool um that'll be that'll be nice to start the year with a job in Louisiana um yeah. I have a Domino's commercial that uh, has been playing all the way through COVID and hopefully will continue to play all the way through uh uh 20 2022. Um, I have three screenplays that are my agent has got people reading. I wrote a just finished writing a TV pilot 
uh, other than that, I'm, other uh, than not, that. <laughs> I'm not doing anything. <laughs> That's really impressive to see that you still have that drive all these years later. There's so many people that you would meet that would be on one thing and use that credit, that one anecdote the rest of their lives. They sit at the bar and they go, yeah, yeah I, know. I was on TV once. <laughs> No, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are that, in that position, and I, I, which is why, I hate to say this, but I don't hang out with actors very much yeah. because they have a tendency to not live in the present. And it's like, if you're so miserable about things that didn't work out, yeah. you should probably retire. Um, you know, unless you, I, I mean, I, literally, probably about, a month ago, I did a thesis film at USC. I haven't done a student film in 20 years. And I, I literally, because of COVID, I hadn't been doing anything. And my manager said, there's this thesis film. They called and apparently they know who you are. Do you want to do it? And it was just so charming and lovely and wonderful to hang around with young people who are excited to be in show business, to be creating projects and art. And I, I, you know, I was having a good time and I was, it was fun showing up. And I think that's the secret. If it's still fun showing up, then you should continue to do it. When it stops being fun showing up, then that's the, that's the, you know, the time to go, you know, I had a nice run in, but it's time to find something else. And the last thing I ask you before I let you go, does any footage exist of the com, uh, the characters that you talked about before, Junior and Salvatore? Yeah, actually, it's so funny. We uh, in 2020, Gary, my Gary Stein, I'll give him a plug. Gary Stein, my former writing partner, called me and said, what do you think about doing something with Sal and Junior? And I was like, like, like what? <laughs> and he said, anyway, we did a YouTube series. We did eight episodes. It's called The Amazing Return of Sal and Junior, and it's on YouTube. Uh, it was just a, a complete kick in the pants to do it. Um, we created this whole ruse that Sal and Junior had been big stars and then got kicked off the network. And now they were coming back because they couldn't stay away from show business, although they'd been gone for 30 years and nobody had missed them. So yeah, you, if, if people want to, they can go and watch The Amazing Return of Sal and Junior. Uh, we also had, which we used in the YouTube series, we had footage from one of the pilots that we shot that we were able to get permission to use. And we also had some footage from something we did 20 years ago that Gary and I did for fun with a DP who's a friend of ours. And we both have dark hair and he's got a mullet and it's, and we, we used that in the, and that was probably the most fun. We had all these publicity stills from 1986, which are ridiculous. And, and it was, it was fun just to pull it all out. It, it, it didn't really do a whole lot for our careers, but it was a lot of fun to do it. I'm looking forward to digging into that as soon as we hang up. <laughs> okay. that is, if that is my sole discovery of today, then it was still a good day. So Sam, Okay, there you go. Thank you for your time. Looking forward to whatever is next. And really, I appreciate you oh, documenting great. great parts of history that <laughs> with me that IMDb has not. Okay, thank you very much. Outro cast.